Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. In business, service is everything. Cintas delivers what you need to better serve your customers. Whether it's freshly laundered work apparel for almost any job imaginable, tested and inspected fire protection systems, first aid and safety supplies, on-site AED training, or mops and restroom products stocked and ready when you need them. Better work days happen together. So visit Cintas.com. Oh, I'm ready! And get ready for the workday. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. From your morning podcast to your afternoon playlist, State Farm knows you personalize your entire day. And that's why State Farm helps you personalize your insurance with the State Farm Personal Price Plan. It offers coverage options that help protect what you care about most at an affordable price just for you. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices vary by state. Options selected by customer. Availability and eligibility may vary. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Education. I'm João Sotomayor, a postdoc at the New York University, and I'm your host for today's episode. We'll be talking to Professor Hava Rachel Gordon in her new book, This is Our School, Race and Community Resistance to School Reform, published in 2021 by the New York University Press. Hava Rachel Gordon is a professor in the Department of Sociology and Criminology at the University of Denver. The book details the actors and processes behind the construction of neoliberal educational reforms. Focusing on a school district in Denver, Colorado, Professor Gordon takes a look at different coalitions within the school reform movement, as well as the surprising competition that arises between them. Drawing on over 80 interviews and ethnographic research, she explores how these groups vie for power, as well as the role of race, class, and gentrification play in shaping their successes and failures, strategies, and structures. Hava, thanks for joining us, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Yeah, so to start, I ask you to tell us a little bit about yourself, about your academic background, and more generally about your interests. Yeah, so I'm primarily a social movements researcher, um, scholar, and I'm a sociologist. Um, I've been very influenced by um, intersectional feminist theory and social movement theory. Um, I teach courses on gender and activism and um, community-engaged courses on social movements and youth in society um, and also globalization. So all of those threads have kind of found their way into the book, I think. Yeah, for sure. That's a yeah, fascinating topic of, of study and research and very important one. Uh, So I wonder if you could tell us also about where the idea for this specific book came from. Yeah, so so I, my previous research really focused on youth activism, and especially teenage political activism um, in the US. And um, I did my previous research on youth activism in Oakland, and in Portland, Oregon, Oakland, California, and Portland, Oregon. And um, there, there was a moment that kind of stuck with me from my previous research in Oakland, 
um, when I was writing about youth activism that stuck with me, but I didn't really understand it well enough to write about it um, in my previous work. And this was the moment. So basically, um, the young activists I got to know in Oakland um, who were attending these big comprehensive high schools, um, they were starting to talk about how their schools were being reformed. Um, and one of the big high schools there was being cut up and, and reformed into a series of small schools, but that were all located in the same building. And so um, one day, one of their, their good friends from childhood um, was killed in an episode of gun violence in their, their community. And so at the time, the principal of one of the small schools allowed um, students to have the day off for the funeral. But the other principals in the same school, in the same neighborhood, didn't let the kids go to the funeral. And so I saw students talking about this and how upset they were that their, their principals wouldn't let them um, attend the funeral of this, this kid who they had known their whole lives in the neighborhood. And it got me thinking about, you know, school structures um, might imagine community different from the neighborhood. Um, and why is it that that these, these schools were undergoing these small schools experiments anyway? And what were the politics behind some of these reforms? Um, so, you know, that stuck with me. I never wrote about it, but it, it gnawed at me. And then I moved to Denver, Colorado for the job at University of Denver. And then I, I noticed that as I was doing research on youth activism in Denver, um, there was a student group who was being active around a school that was undergoing a small schools experiment. And it got me thinking, whoa, like this is exactly what I was seeing in Oakland and now I'm seeing it in Denver. And what explains that? So that set me on a path to try to understand the very messy politics of school reform, which I had never studied before. Um, so I, I tried to understand what was behind this small school experiment, you know, at this this kind of um, big community neighborhood school. Um, who was responsible for turning that into a few small schools? Um, what were the young activists saying about that? Um, and why were they griping about it? You know, what was wrong with with turning a big school into small schools? And so um, so since then, I started to just talk through and snowball sample and interview and then do ethnography for the next five years, um, trying to understand how different people viewed that experiment and others in the city. Yeah, thank you. So the book kind of inspired by this, those experimental changes around small schools, uh, it's more broadly about neoliberal educational reform. So I wonder, uh, for the context of, of background, I wonder if you could tell our listeners a little bit more what you mean by neoliberal reform and by the policies and practices which are often implied by, by this term. Yeah, so it's such a big abstract term, and we hear it thrown around a lot in academic literature. Um, and basically, I think what it comes down to, neo neoliberalism is kind of about the marketization of society. The idea that um, if, if things worked more like the market, um, if we could view things as a, as a good quality product versus like a public a public good provided by the state, then um, then things would be better, and so maybe we should hand over our public, you know, sector more to the market. But with education in particular, 
it means a few things. And I try to drill down to these specifics and outline those. Um, It means, number one, the rise of standardized testing. So high stakes standardized testing um, and accountability. So um, students and schools undergoing a battery of tests and trying to rate the schools and rate the teachers and rate the students to to hold schools accountable to some kind of metrics, right? So that's been part of um, neoliberalism in education, I think. Um, Another one has been the proliferation of um, school choice. So the idea that um, educational equity is really more about market choice than it is about integration, for example, you know, and that's a big break from former uh, former decades of educational change that viewed integration as kind of a key to racial justice in education. Now we're looking at proponents of neoliberalism talking about, it's uh, more about giving families and students better choices than it is really about uh, racially integrating them. Um, So I think there's a kind of a civil rights backlash in that sense um, that is associated with neoliberalism in education. I think also we see the rise of charter schools, and that's been associated with the neoliberal moment in education. So the idea that um, charter schools can be kind of um, uh, incubators for new new reform experiments and, and can be kind of new features of the educational marketplace. Um, so that's, that's one big piece of that. Um, And then I would say also with um, reform, neoliberal reform, especially in education, there's also a diversity rhetoric or even a civil rights rhetoric that accompanies neoliberalism. And that can make neoliberalism very hard to see and recognize because it speaks the language of social justice um, or at least some progressive version of social justice. Um, So... Um, examples of this might be proponents saying that um, choice, school choice can release um, black and brown students from, from having to attend their crappy neighborhood school. It can give them more choices and thus more um, liberation and better educational opportunity. Um, even if school choice uh, accelerates uh, segregation in schooling. So I think um, that rhetoric of uh, racial justice is also important to pay attention to. It's part of selling the neoliberal um, education model. Yeah, thank you. That's that's very helpful. Uh, so you you analyze this this broad umbrella of neoliberal reform specifically in the context of Denver in in a school district in which you explore in detail. So I wonder if you could also tell us a little bit about what about the characteristics of this district and some of the the historical background that inspired your investigation. Yeah, definitely. So Denver is a really unique case study, I think. Um, And there have been really good studies of, I think, of neoliberal education reform all over the U.S. And Denver is kind of like those, but not exactly like those. So, you know, um, for example, in Washington, D.C. and other cities, we've seen mayoral takeover of the school board, you know, so um, that's not something that is part of Denver's story, for example, or, um, or 
Hurricane Katrina kind of wiping out infrastructure and then privatizers coming in to New Orleans and, and replacing everything with a charter school. That's also not Denver's model exactly. So it's got a different trajectory. Um, Denver was one of the first uh, places outside of the South to undergo um, court-ordered desegregation. So I think that's important in its history. Um, uh, and so we've had decades of, of busing that has tried to integrate students across racial and class lines. Um, Denver is also one of the birthplaces of the Chicano student movement, which is really important. So, you know, in, in a lot of cities with that kind of movement history, you also have, you know, formal organizations that are part of that legacy that try to keep that movement alive um, and keep fighting for educational justice. Um, so you have this movement infrastructure, you know, in Denver, but then you also have the story of this elite reform movement coming into the city. And um, in the early 2000s, we saw it land in Denver after it had been on the coasts where I was, you know, in Oakland um, or in New York City. You know, the small schools experiments were part of that early wave of reform. Um, it landed in Denver in the early 2000s and um, it began to be funded by philanthropists, you know, by well-known philanthropists, um, by hedge funders. Um, and so that's when it, the kind of the national reform movement landed, um, not on a coastal city, but, but inside the U S, um, in Denver. So we have like a movement history kind of colliding with this new marketization of education. And I think that's why Denver makes a really interesting case study for trying to understand how movements fight neoliberalism or how they fight elements of it. Um, and maybe um, are acquiescent to other elements of it, but how far can community movements um, counter neoliberal reform and where, the, where do they fall short? That's really what the book is about. Yeah, thank you. And, and the book is, is fascinating because it details the actors and actions behind the implementation of those reforms. Uh, and you spend a lot of time detailing the characteristics of those who are proposing their reforms and pushing them forward. Uh, so I wonder if you could also talk about that. Who are these actors and what are some of their characteristics? You mean the reformers? That's right. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So yeah, that's, that's one of the big things I think that was missing in the literature I was reading when I was trying to learn about neoliberal reform as a movement. You know, how has it come in and kind of tried to privatize uh, public education. Very few of those studies talk about the movers attached to the movement. You know, who are these mysterious reformers? Um, and some would argue these are big corporate, you know, corporate power players or they're, they're big foundations or, um, you know, networks of, of corporate-minded people. But what I found is that mm, some of them are even more humble than that. You know, they are journalists, they are bloggers, they're former um, school principals, they might be former Teach for America alums, um, they're politicians, they might be working even on a school board or um, working in the district. So I tried to find all of these reformers um, and try to interview them about the reform movement. What does it mean to them? What got them into it? Um, how they saw themselves as activists even um, and what they were trying to do. 
So they're, they're from all walks of life. But I think what they have in common is, number one, this heroic impatience for educational improvement. Um, I think it's important that they see themselves as civil rights actors and that they're fighting the good fight. Some of them even see themselves as giving up a lot of privilege to leave their cushy corporate jobs to enter this kind of world of educational improvement. So they're very um, impatient. They want things to get better, and they believe in experimentation because they feel like after decades of um, substandard education, there's nothing to lose. You know, so let's try these reform experiments. Let's approve a new charter school. You know, let's let innovative entrepreneurs enter um, the educational marketplace and do try to do what they do best. You know, do what they would do in the corporate setting. Um, I think they feel like even if the the um, experiment doesn't work, then we learn something from the experiment. Um, so I would say those things unite uh, the reformers. Also a belief in standardized test scores and accountability. Um, but the other thing that really surprised me when I started to interview these reformers and see them in action is that they also look at some community organizations, community justice organizations, as really important to the reform mission. So even though they called themselves the real reformers, they would talk about some of their allies um, in the community. And that's what surprised me the most with, with this study of these groups of people is that um, from everything I read, reformers just come into communities and railroad over, over, over them and kind of make the changes they want to make. But what I saw is that these were more like activists trying to form these nascent coalitions with um, other activists in the city. Yeah, I definitely think this is one of the, the most fascinating insights of the book. And and I, I'll quote you here with a passage that I think translates that well. You write that neoliberal reform doesn't uh, does not passively land on urban centers like Denver from above through mysterious, amorphous and anonymous processes. So I thought that describes what you're mentioning, uh, that reformers act through interactions and coalitions with local level partners, right? Uh, so I, I wonder if you could talk about uh, something that you, you spend quite a bit of time in the book as well, which is how reformers view those local level communities and how do they perceive them in, in different ways? Yeah. Well, so what I found interesting is that even though reformers value some community groups, they really denigrate others. So they valued the groups that also expressed urgency and accountability, you know, and I think a lot of critics of neoliberalism talk about urgency and accountability as just like, um, like excuses to come in and privatize something without public input. But it's important to remember that some, some of these like Chicano movement organizations, for example, um, also said it's urgent that we get educational justice um, throughout the school system. This has been urgent for 20 years, for 30 years. It's still urgent now. So if you're saying it's urgent and I'm saying it's urgent, maybe there's some shared you know, um, opportunity here to work together. So I think um, reformers valued any kind of community activists that saw the urgency of school reform, that wanted school reform. Um, I think also these reformers viewed um, anyone in the community holding reformers accountable 
to the promises they were making. So if reformers said, we're going to increase test scores by this many points, you know, by the end of the year, then they saw community members as really essential to raising hell if that didn't happen. And they, in their minds, they would make it a mission to educate every person in the city about what test scores mean. You know, that's what they would like to see is like, you shouldn't talk about how nice your kid's teacher is. Um, you should be talking about how much that teacher is moving the needle on test scores. And so that was their mission to educate community members. And if they saw even a glimpse of that in a community organization that was um, trying to hold schools accountable to better performance, then that community group was looked upon as an ally, an important ally. Um, the groups, though, that they didn't trust were the groups that were saying, we don't want any more charter schools in our neighborhood. We don't want any more experimentation in our neighborhood. We actually want our neighborhood school back. And not only do we want it, um, we want it better resourced. We want it as resourced as the the blue ribbon school in the in the white middle class neighborhood across the way. You know that's what we want. So those voices, um, reformers felt like they were blindly loyal to their neighborhood schools. Um, that they were basing what they wanted on some kind of a nostalgia for a time when everyone went to the same neighborhood school and that was the only choice you had. And as one reformer said to me, nostalgia is not a strategy for reform. So we're not going to partner with those folks. They are uninformed. Um, they've never really had a good education and they don't really know what they want. So um, so I saw that kind of double speak. Here are the good community people. Here are the bad ones. I see. So there was certainly a kind of imbalance in the way they valued community participation. And what are some of the consequences of, of that imbalance uh, in, in terms of what reformers were, were able to, to do? Yeah. So I think the consequences were actually, um, in the end, they played out for the possibilities for coalitions between groups. So, you know, as they saw community, some community groups as valuable, those community groups also saw reformers as like momentarily valuable too. Um, but unfortunately, those community groups lost the opportunity to ally with um, the denigrated uh, neighborhood schools activists. Um, so in the end, I think having those really uneven partnerships with reformers actually hurt the chances for a broader racial justice movement from below. Um, but also, I think one of the, the consequences of reformers' kind of selective allyship is that maybe certain racial justice goals were um, imported into the neoliberal project um, at the cost of other goals. So, for example, maybe we have some neighborhoods that, that were able to get transportation to schools for low-income kids so that they could realize the promise of school choice. You know, that was one of the groups I studied was um, really uh, um, trying to push for public transportation for for school choice so that choice could really be realized. Um, but at the same time, then neighborhood schools are still being closed. Charter schools are still opening up. Um, people are being pushed out of their neighborhoods. So the larger issues of gentrification or school closures, I think, were left off the organizing table. It, those were, were goals, I think, that community movements could not um, push for with reformers. 
I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com, designed for work. Yeah, thank you. So moving a bit away from the implementation of those reforms, you also talk about some of the resistance to those reforms after they were actually implemented in, in some specific cases, uh, especially for from lower income and minority groups. So uh, I wonder if you could talk about some of the issues that racial minorities had with the reforms and some of the struggles they faced because of those implementations and experiences. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, um, for sure. And um, I have a whole chapter on um, these low-income activists that actually aren't part of nonprofit social justice groups. And I think that's important. That That's a divide I started to see um, between the formal um, nonprofit groups and then the activists in the neighborhoods who are fighting for neighborhood schools. Um, so a lot of these activists are still organizing, you know, they're still organizing grassroots ways, but they just have a profound distrust, not only of the reform movement, but also of some of the institutionalized nonprofit social justice groups in the city um, that they see as not fighting against gentrification enough. So um, so I, I feature some of these groups in a chapter, um, and basically they had all kinds of stories about school choice that revealed a lot about how school choice works for some of these families. So feeling like, for example, they walked across the street to a school um, to try to enroll their student, and the school would say, don't bother getting on the wait list. The wait list is already hundreds of people long. You're never going to get in. You know, that kind of a message um, that maybe we're not choosing so much as schools are choosing us or not choosing us. So that was that was a big story that came out is that schools actually filter out um, Black parents in particular. Um, so other other stories they told about were um, new charter schools that opened up in their communities that tried to get them to spread the word about the new charter school that promised them a seat at the school that promised them the education would be good for their children. And then they come to find out that because their child has special needs, the school can't serve them. 
So already they, this, this parent has been enrolled in marketing for the school, um, but then they can't even enroll, enroll their school, uh, their kid there. Um, other parents tried to get help from the, the Denver Public Schools Choice Office to get some recommendations for where, how they should list their choices, um, especially for parents with um, students with special needs. And the choice office might say, well, okay, based on what you need, here are three schools you can consider that you should consider. And all of them were ranked as failing schools, you know? So um, this idea that school choice liberates low-income folks, um, this was not the story that a lot of these activists were telling. Um, Some of them were telling stories also of um, schools where they had to sign a parent agreement saying that they they wouldn't um, speak directly to the teacher or ever speak directly to the principal, but they would speak to this liaison who was, who was kind of a position that pivots between the teacher and the parent or between the principal and the parent. And a lot of parents felt like this is like keeping me from having a direct conversation about my kid um, in the school. And then they had all kinds of stories about discipline systems and schooling and um, charter schools that are marketed to low-income kids that have very strict kind of disciplinary structures. And their stories about those and, and having to take their kids out of those schools eventually because of um, disproportionate discipline. So those are some of the experiences from their perspective that, that kind of drove them to some activism. And you also talk about how difficult it is for those groups to organize and resist to those reforms. And one of the challenges that you flag, for example, is that even even though they might have similar kind of uh, justifications or arguments, they often also have differences and movements can often become fragmented. Uh, So I wonder if you could also tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, definitely. So um, what was interesting is that a lot of these non-institutionalized movements, just the neighborhood movements fighting for their neighborhood schools, um, really had these similar critiques of school choice, similar critiques of charter schools. Um, But this one that I was just telling you about was more low-income Black and and Latina families. Um, I also found one, though, that was more of a a very white dominated middle-class movement against school choice, um, fighting for their neighborhood school. So it got me wondering why wasn't I seeing more overlap between the neighborhood schools activists? Um, and as I, as I kind of attended their meetings and, um, interviewed them and tried to understand their movement philosophies, I found that of course, race and class are huge dividing lines within within movements, you know, in between movements. Um, so even though they were advancing the same critiques of school choice, the same critiques of privatization, the same critiques of charter schools moving in, um, or schools co-locating in a traditional neighborhood school, they just couldn't find points of convergence. And I think the deeper story underneath that is um, their different stances on gentrification. Of course, for white middle-class families moving into neighborhoods of color, um, they might view gentrification as a passive process, as maybe eventually a beneficial process, or maybe something inevitable, but not really something that they want to tackle as a social justice issue, or even recognize their part in, in playing. 
Um, whereas I think for the Black and Latina activists fighting for their neighborhood schools, their fight was all about fighting displacement of their communities. You know, they ta- they they connected the takeover of the public school system with the takeover of their public parks, for example, um, where their handball courts were turned into dog parks for, for white newcomers. Um, or the neighborhood association meeting was now being taken over by more white folks in the community now than it used to be. So... Um, I think that's kind of underlying some of the battles for schools are also the battles for livability in the city. So that's one divide. I'll I'll mention the other two. The other surprising divide was really between the nonprofits that might have also tackled racial injustice and discipline policies um, and the folks without a nonprofit structure around them. I, I rarely saw them together. Um, to be able to join forces, even though they both had very strong analyses of uh, racial justice and education. So the book is more about um, why coalitions don't form when you when you think they might. Yeah, thank you so much. I think that's yeah very helpful. Uh, so yeah, like you said, we're talking mostly about how how it's often difficult for local level movements to successfully organize and resist the implementation of these reforms. But you also note some reforms that, although we're not uh, extremely successful, you call them at least partially successful. Uh, so I wonder if we could uh, go through those examples as well. So the first one that you talk about uh, has to do with the context of school choice reforms. Uh, and you showed that in certain cases, even middle class white families show resistance to it. Uh, can, can we kind of go through this example a little bit and uh, maybe why were white parents resistant to school choice movements to start with and to what extent such resistance was helpful to support the resistance by uh, racial minority groups and to what extent that was not helpful? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and yeah, it's surprising that white families would resist and critique school choice because all the literature would say that white affluent families are really designed to be the recipients of, of the benefits of school choice. They always come out on top, right? So why would white families resist this? And what I found was that um, there were white families moving into um, to historically uh, neighborhoods dominated by communities of color, um, and they did not want to live in the suburbs. They grew up in the lily white suburbs, and they didn't want that. They wanted to be in a more diverse place, and they wanted to send their kids to the neighborhood school. They didn't want to drive their kid a half hour or 45 minutes across town for a good school. Um, reformers felt like white families would always do this. They could count on white affluent families to find the choices that worked for them because they'd be willing to drive. But when I started looking at the movements by white families um, who were resisting this, they said, I don't want to drive to find a good educational opportunity. I want it right in the neighborhood. And I want to work and live and my kids to play in the same place that my kids go to school. Like, I want this anchoring to my neighborhood. This is our school in our neighborhood. Um, So this motivated a lot of um, white families to actually fight the district and fight reformers on some of these reforms. Um, I, I detail one of these movements that lasted for about a year and then fell apart. 
Um, but they, it, it's important to, to look at the fact that they were buoyed by previous mobilizations around the neighborhood middle school of white families who were able to intervene in the reform processes and say, wait a minute, don't take over our middle school. We have designs for this. We have ideas for this. And they started to organize and kind of get the district's ear and was able to um, halt some of the neoliberal reforms that were coming into that school. So that victory kind of set off a wave of of other um, efforts to halt some of the district's um, turnaround or even closures. Um, And then the second part of your question was, what didn't it accomplish? That's right. Yeah. So to to what extent, to what extent, uh, I mean, you've been talking about how the movement from white parents kind of coincided and it was helpful to the general movement against school choice. But to some extent, that movement uh, wasn't super successful because, like you mentioned, it kind of fell apart after one year, at least in the case that you look at. So what are some of the reasons why that movement just didn't continue? So a big reason is that try as they might, they could not attract um, like a multicultural kind of draw to their movement. And they, they knew that um, it looked bad, that they were all white and they were people fighting in the name of diverse, you know, diverse neighborhood schools. Um, and they tried to get um, some of their Latin A uh, neighbors involved um, and they kept failing to draw them to their meetings. And they were curious about that because they were kind of thinking, if we're in the fight, why wouldn't people join us? You know, we are fighting not just for our kids, but for your kids. And if we can get our our good testing kids into these neighborhood schools, that's the key to everyone's success, right? Then we can kind of keep our neighborhood schools as diverse and high performing as we can. And that benefits everyone. So the whole like subtext that what we want, like what lifts our boats is going to lift everyone's boats really turned off a lot of potential allies of color, right? As it always does. And it actually echoes what the district has been trying to do and what reformers would argue that in order to revitalize the public school system, we need white affluent parents to come back and enroll in the schools. Um, So that valuation of white cultural and social capital was kind of a thread that ran through the reformers, but also through these white neighborhood school activists. Um, So in the end, they didn't get a, a multiracial, multicultural movement going. And then the reformers could say, well, you guys are just fighting on behalf of white students and your white families, and we're fighting on behalf of black and brown kids. So we're not going to listen to you. You know, we, we are fighting the good fight. We are the real reformers and the real civil rights activists, and you're just self-interested. Um, and in the end, they kind of... Um, got deflated and and left the movement when they saw that they couldn't change um, plans for their neighborhood school to be turned around. Yeah, thank you. So one other example of those coalitions, which were partially successful at least, was the case of community nonprofits that you looked at. And uh, sometimes they become involved in the reformers networks networks and they were able to actually engage with uh, the dialogue around the neoliberal reforms, uh, but some other times that didn't play out uh, so well. So I wonder if you could also walk us through this example and to what extent did that kind of um, coalitions work and to what extent they did not? 
For sure. So, I mean, you know, social justice nonprofits are so important and they can sustain social justice campaigns in a way that um, activists who don't have that kind of infrastructure can. Um, you know, with the low-income um, activists of color, I I studied with um, many of them, like wanted formal spaces to meet, wanted newsletters, needed infrastructure to keep their movements going. And they couldn't get that without being institutionalized. It was really tough. Um, so, so as contrast, you know, these nonprofits had spaces to meet. They were able to... Um, to kind of embolden youth activists who were able to kind of get their voices into school reform debates. Um, and some of those, um, some of those victories they had were of, for example, um, getting restorative justice practices into the schools. So instead of having punitive school to prison pipelines, um, they could interrupt some of those, uh, patterns with restorative justice, um, so that was like one victory or having food security in schools. So other um, organizations were fighting for free breakfast in schools as part of the reform agenda. Um, you know, these are things that reformers actually could get behind to some degree um, because you could still have school choice and charters and, you know, testing and accountability and all those things, but still have breakfast, right? That's a good thing. So I think nonprofits have been able to do amazing things and make um, piecemeal change, I think. But the things they couldn't do were partnering with mostly working class and poor communities of color around issues of gentrification, of livability, um, those kinds of issues were harder to fight for because they couldn't coalesce with um, those communities as easily. Yeah, thank you. So we've looked at examples of coalitions which were partially successful, some coalitions which were not able to be formed, some of uh, the different struggles around the actors and communities pushing forward and resisting to those reforms. So there are a lot of reflections that we can draw from those observations and analysis. Uh, so I, I wanted to hear you more broadly about those those reflections. So what, what do you think the book can tell us in terms of how local level movements, grassroots movements can successfully uh, have a say in those reforms and really advocate for true educational improvement for their communities. Yeah. Um, well, in looking at some of these potential coalitions that were thwarted along the way, I, I have so much faith in movements. That's why I study them. And that's why I also study why movements go awry or why they don't succeed, because I feel like we can learn lessons from their failures. Um, and so one of those lessons, I think, and this is for education scholars, too, who might see social movements as the answer to educational injustices, um, social movements have also undergone changes because of neoliberalism. So I think that's one thing we have to recognize. It's not just schools or public institutions, but it's also movements. And I spend a lot of time in the book talking about um, the strengths and also the limitations of those funded nonprofits who have to cut up their social justice visions into discrete, discrete campaigns um, that dictate who they can align with 
and what the deliverables might be to funders. And sometimes that can inhibit those nonprofits to join with working class and poor black and brown folks who are organizing, but organizing around, um, around issues of labor or labor rights or economic rights um, in particular. So my, my takeaway would be that um, I think nonprofits, because they have this amazing infrastructure, could do so much more to link arms with some of those activists who are outside of their nonprofit, um, who could actually revitalize their organizations. Um, and then the other, um, the other takeaway, I feel like, is for the other partially successful movement, which is the white neighborhood activists who are taking, you know, some risk to give up um, some of their educational advantage by fighting for diverse neighborhood schools. And I, I suggest that one of the things they do to build the coalitions they really want is to center the perspectives and the needs of those they are trying to align with. So instead of um, a model of interest convergence, where you know they have an interest in keeping their public school open um, uh, or not taken over by a charter, for example, um, and trying to fight, trying to pull in you know allies of color to that mission, they should really hear the stories of their allies of color about not only about the school but also about the neighborhood, also about their experiences of gentrification, about food justice, about police harassment and brutality and center those in their calls for neighborhood schools. So if that that's a model called cause affirmation, um, and I, I was actually really influenced by an article by Beamish and Lubbers, who studied a successful multiracial and multi-class coalition. And they said that this part of the success was that the most privileged centered the concerns and the needs of the least privileged and then radiated that outward and kind of advocated for those things. Um, so I think that would be a very different kind of model than the model I, I saw in the, the white neighborhood activists. Yeah, thank you. I think that's very helpful. So we've taken up a lot of your time already. So to wrap up, I just wanted to ask you about your research since finishing the book. What are some projects which you've taken up since then? And what are some of the questions that you are interested in now? Yeah, so I think one of my big interests um, is actually figuring out where teachers fit into this um, battle against neoliberal reform. And what's interesting is that I really don't talk about the teachers much, but you know, in 2018 and 2019, teachers have dominated the news media about you know their their pushback against um, neoliberal reform, and for good reason. So. I, I talk about in the book why in the Denver case, they weren't really very visible as activists or coalition partners, but in so many places they are. So I want to learn more about how, um, how teachers, you know, find their identities as activists and how they coalesce with other groups and especially with youth, you know, and youth are also launching movements um, for safer schools, for better schools, for racial justice in schools. So what are the alignments between the labor movements of teachers and student activists? And where do those fall apart? That would be some of my, my new interests um, and maybe some of my future work. Yeah, that's fascinating. So Hawa, thank you for being on the podcast today. 
Uh, we've been talking about the book, This is Our School, Race and Community Resistance to School Reform by Professor Hava Rachel Gordon and recently published by the New York University Press. Thank you for listening and until next time.